Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Evie Strauss, and thank you for listening. There has been some recent published scientific work on the association between one's perception of aging and how that may predict a decline in cognitive ability. Dr. Diedrich Robertson is the first author of some of these studies, and she is from the Department of Medical Gerontology at Trinity College in Dublin. The work group is known as the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging. She has kindly agreed to talk to us about this work. Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The number of elderly people who are beginning to experience cognitive decline and dementia is rapidly growing throughout the world. Can you explain how we might slow down or change the perception of this process such that we could have a good impact on the rate or degree of decline? Yes, certainly. The Alzheimer's Association estimates that there are 5.3 million Americans um, with Alzheimer's disease. So it's certainly a growing problem and and where those numbers are estimated to increase over the next couple of decades. So unfortunately, there is no known successful cure or way to definitively slow down cognitive decline. But we are starting to understand more about the risk factors and the causes behind Alzheimer's disease. Some of the most interesting work in recent decades is showing that there are behavioral and psychological factors which are strong risk factors for dementia. Uh, So, for example, education, higher education, continued cognitive stimulation and social engagement all appear to be protective against the development of dementia. So in the absence of successful pharmacological treatments at the moment, the answer to slowing down the onset of dementia may lie in behavioral or psychological interventions that can target these factors. So we don't yet have an answer, but there is certainly a lot of work going on trying to develop interventions to delay it. One of the articles that you wrote, you talked about the mere priming of a person with negative perceptions of the aging process can result in a very rapid reduction in walking speeds. Why do you measure walking speed? Is the sensitivity really that, uh, shall we say, delicate, that priming a person with a negative perception can really make such a difference? Walking speed is a very good indication of overall physical function in later life, something which is used in doctor's surgeries as a kind of quick indicator of physical function. As you can imagine, it involves, you know, muscle mass and um, coordination and balance. So it's a, a good indicator of all the physical functions in later life. So we measured walking speed as a kind of simple indicator, and we used a measure called the timed up and go. In this task, participants are asked to sit on a chair, uh, and when a nurse who was doing the assessment told them they stood up, walked to a point three metres on the ground in front of them, turned around, walked back and sat back down again. So this was an objective measure of walking speed the nurse used a stopwatch to time how fast they were able to do it. To your second question, there have been a lot of experimental studies, particularly over the past 15, 20 years, I'd say, which indeed have shown that when you prime older adults without their awareness of negative stereotypes about aging, you see immediate declines in all sorts of functions. So, for example, priming older adults with negative stereotypes about aging, we can see that their memory declines immediately, their walking speed declines immediately, their hearing seems to decline immediately. This is quite a strong, priming has quite a strong effect on these objective functions immediately afterwards. It brings up the necessary follow-up thought, and I've seen this many times myself clinically, that when someone is put into a nursing home, they decline much more rapidly. I guess they go into a completely different environment. It signals everything that's negative. 
Absolutely, yes. There's a lot of research in this and there was a very interesting study many years ago which found that merely giving nursing home residents more control over or what they wanted to do with their day um, showed significant improvements and stopped that kind of decline that you're talking about. Of course, with moving to a nursing home, there's all sorts of other complications. Somebody might be ill and that's the reason they move in. It's also a huge change of environment. So there are a number of factors that may contribute to immediate declines, but certainly in there, the kind of change in perception of oneself, the lack of control may also have an effect. What sort of topics do you look at? So I'll just tell you a little bit about the studies. TILDA, the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging, is a nationally representative study of adults aged 50 and older in the Republic of Ireland. In 2009, we randomly selected households throughout the country and ended up with over 8,500 participants. Um, And now we've just collected the third wave of data. So every two years, we go back to our participants and ask them to repeat the same measures. And we've retained over 80% of the sample at the moment of those original 8,500. So there's a fantastic team of researchers working on the TILDA data set, very multidisciplinary. There are economists, there are psychologists, doctors, sociologists. Um, all looking at different aspects of ageing and also how all these different disciplines interact. So, for example, we have research because we're nationally representative, we can show that what the rates of obesity are in older adults in Ireland, for example. Or we can look at how changes in blood pressure and heart rate affect different facets of health, including cognitive function or physical function. Um, And we can also look at things like how early life events predict changes in later life. So it's probably too much to mention here because it's not my own research, but there's a a great website. Please. Tilda, T-I-L-D-A dot T-C-D dot I-E. In this rather large subject group, which is what you said was over 8,000, which is a very substantial mm-hmm. study group, are there some other things that you note? Can you predict, can you detect who is going to have a harder time aging versus those who will have an easier time? Are there personality clusters that you are able to identify, or is that data still not yet available? It's a very young study at the moment. So the first data was only collected in 2009. So if you think about it, the vast majority of participants would have been maybe between 50 and 65 at that stage. So at this stage, we're six years on. Um, So we probably haven't got the data to predict what's going to happen to people when they're 80, because we've only been continuing the measurements for six years. There are other longitudinal studies in other parts of the world, in America and the UK and India, which America and the UK have been going on longer and they are certainly trying to identify exactly that, like who is going to be worse off in later life and who is going to be protected to some extent from decline. So I don't yet have the answer, but for example, other research have shown, and just to go back to my own research topic, that older adults with positive perceptions of ageing have a better use of self-regulation skills. For example, if something goes wrong or when they experience a setback or a health event, um, these people seem to be less likely to give up and more likely to adapt their behaviour in order to cope and to carry on. So it might be that it depends, it's more about coping skills than about something um, specific that we can pick up in a cluster about who is going to age more healthier or less healthier. Every now and then we read about research that's suggesting that declining cells, the onset of dementia in whatever form, most commonly Alzheimer's, is related to the cells having a metabolic imbalance in which they cannot rid themselves of metabolic byproducts, or as some people say, the garbage that comes from metabolism, or that there is some DNA-based lack of protection 
the notion we walk away with is that our healthy perceptions, do they make for healthier cells? If someone is depressed and we put them on an antidepressant, quite often we see their cognitive improvement. That may be a product of the depression or it may be a product of the change of their perceptions of their, of their life. I find this very fascinating. I know there's no hard answer yet, but I would just like your thoughts on that because I see it so often. Thought decline, depression, economic pressures, loss of a social network. Are you measuring those variables in your study? Yeah, so absolutely. Just to answer the second one first, we have a lot of social network questions and questions about finances and retirement. So ultimately, we will be able to put together all of these variables and look at exactly what you're talking about. And with regards to your first question, I should just say I am not an expert in physiology or in biology, so I'm not really qualified to answer that. And it's a fascinating topic, but it is certainly true. And we're finding more and more that psychological factors do seem to have an effect on physiological factors. So for example, we know that psychological stress seems to affect inflammatory processes and we know that it affects um, hormones such as cortisol, which then have damaging effects on other parts of the body. And there's a work by a group in Montpellier um, by Yannick Stefan, who has found that older adults who feel younger have lower levels of C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker in their body. And he found this in a similar longitudinal study, the HRS study. So it's, I mean, it's in the very early stages. And as I say, I'm not a physiologist, but certainly there does seem to be in some elements an interaction between psychology and biology, um, which we're getting to know more and more about and will do in the next decades, I imagine. The study that you do is basically folks in Ireland. Yeah. It raises the question of how much of what you're seeing is culturally bound. If you were to go to other cultures, is there a sense from just other research that you may have read about that this perception issue varies according to religion, according to sex, according to subgroups and cultures? Do you have data in that direction yet? Yeah, of course. And that's a, a very interesting, very important question, because even with the societal structure, for example, the age at which people retire or what grandparents are expected to do with grandkids later in life, of course, all of these factors are going to affect perceptions of aging. Maybe 50 years ago, the perception was very simple. It was that in Asian cultures, there was a more positive perception of aging and in Western, a more negative perception of aging. And that was explained by collective versus individualist societies. However, research in more recent years is finding that it isn't quite so simple as that. So certainly there have been studies looking cross-culturally at perceptions of aging in society, but it doesn't seem to be split so cleanly along those lines. So there are some Asian countries which have very negative perceptions of aging and some which have very positive and same with Western countries. So I don't think we know exactly yet what factors predict perceptions of aging in a society, but it's something which is going to be looked at, I'm sure, in the next couple of years. In the course of my years of just being a psychiatrist, I've met many people who come from all sorts of incredible backgrounds, some of them very traumatic and even some mm -hmm. Holocaust victims. And when they've developed an attitude towards life that's very positive, it, it dovetails exactly with what you're saying. They look at life, they treasure life, they embrace life, their overall cognitive skills, they deteriorate, obviously, but they seem to be richer and more lively. That's why I'm so excited about your work, and I'm, I'm, you know, waiting for you to get more data so we can <laughs> bite into this even more. How long do you plan to do the study? 
Um, well, I mean, it's indefinite, hopefully. The current next wave of data, the fourth wave, is going to be collected later this year, for example. So as long as we have participants and as long as there is funding for the study. So we would hope that would go on, we'd be able to track people into their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. Um, there, there is no definite end date. When you talk about funding for the study, what you're talking about is probably the greatest challenge to medicine. We all age. We look at diabetes and arthritis, and those are necessary things to look at. But if we could slow down the cognitive decline, again, to use the word huge, that, that is, it's huge. It's the greatest challenge we have because it applies to everybody. So I vote for your funding. <laughs> Thank you. There has been discussion of the notion of fragility, and that's been mentioned in some of the papers, and that there are domains of fragility, weakness, slowness, being sedentary, unintentional weight loss, and exhaustion. When I read it, there seemed to be no mention of the fragility of a cognitive domain. Is the cognitive domain considered to be part of that notion of fragility? Talk about fragility, if you would. Sure, exactly. That is the question. The whole question with frailty or fragility is what are we measuring and what is it? So I think in all of our heads, if I said frailty, all of us could conjure up an image of frail and probably some of those characteristics might be stooped over and very thin and very weak. But for researchers, for scientists, what is very hard is to figure out how we can actually measure this and determine who is frail. Um, so the measure which you were just talking about there, which is a measure that I use, um, is one developed by Linda Freed in Columbia University. And it focuses mainly on the physical characteristics of frailty. So as you said, the weakness and the slowness and exhaustion. Um, there are other measures, such as those developed by Ken Rockwood in Canada, which do include measures of cognition and mood. And that's more of an index of kind of ongoing decline is how they envision frailty. So it boils down to how you want to define frailty. We don't know yet is poor cognition part of the frailty syndrome or is it separate but caused by or a cause of frailty. There are certainly frail older adults who do not have cognitive impairment and cognitively impaired older adults who are not frail. So it's kind of hard to unpick which is part of the same syndrome and which is part of something separate. For the purposes of my research, I wanted to look at the relationship between physical frailty and cognition. So for that reason, I used the Freed measure, which does not have any cognitive components in it so that I wouldn't be doubly measuring something. It's an interesting question. There's a lot of research at the moment looking at how frailty and cognition and frailty and mood and so on are all linked. And I think in the next few years, we're going to have more information on that. If some person begins to see that they're not walking, the walking speed issue, their muscle mass is declined, they're not able to do physically what they could do, it could begin a downward spiral, somewhat of a self-defeating downward spiral that can lead to increased negative perceptions, which in turn becomes a self defeating, to use the word again, downward problematic issue that we have to try to break. Exactly. And, and that's exactly my model and my hypothesis is that we all in no way saying that physical decline and cognitive decline is not something that happens with age, but just that it may not be as dramatic as perceptions would have us believe. And that perhaps it is my hypothesis anyway, that 
when an older adult experiences some level of physical or cognitive decline, even at a very small level, then it might depend on how they cope with that and how they react to that, which then affects their perceptions and which actually, as exactly as you say, brings them into a downward uh, spiral. And indeed, the original frailty measurement is conceived as a spiral, Sir Linda Freed's um, measurement, in which one symptom then affects the other symptom, which affects the other symptom. And if people become frail and have well, her definition is three or more of the indicators that we talked about. Fascinating, necessary work. Again, what attracted me to it and why I am applauding you for it is that we have moved, I think, far too much into finding a pill that's going to fix it. And this is a matter of developing attitudes and perceptions of a phase of life that is a phase of life. And we have to adapt to it accordingly. It's good work. I, I am, I'm so pleased to talk to you Thank and to you. hear about this. Deidre Robinson is associated with research that we've just discussed. She's from the Trinity College in Dublin. I've never been to Ireland. I recommend. <laughs> and I thank you so much for doing this. And I hope that we can talk again in a year or two just to see what new material and observations and conclusions and advice that you can give to a situation that's facing all of us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Abby. Thank you.